It was December 11, 2018, and Jacko Zwetslut was looking forward to reconnecting with an old friend. Zwetslut lives in the bustling city of Seoul in South Korea. And on this Tuesday night, he was attending a lecture at a local academic association. That's where he planned to meet his Canadian friend, Michael Spavor. The two had known each other for a decade. They'd worked and traveled together. But Spavor had moved from Seoul to China several years earlier, and the two friends hadn't seen each other in over a year. Well, now Spavor was coming to town for a visit, and they planned to attend the lecture and then go out for a drink. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor and privilege tonight to introduce uh, our speaker. Uh, As the lecturer Professor was introduced, Zwetslut scanned the room. There was no sign of Spavor. When he didn't turn up to that lecture, I, I thought, oh, I wonder what's happened. So he sent him a text message. No response. Zwetslut woke up the next morning to news that another Canadian, Michael Kovrig, had been detained in China, accused of being a spy. By that evening, Zwetslut began to panic. He still had no word from his friend. Uh, and, and by Wednesday evening, I was uh, doing all I could to, to contact my contact at the Canadian Embassy here in Seoul to find out whether it was possible to ascertain whether Michael had entered the country or not, because I, I felt that, yeah, something had definitely gone wrong. And, you know, it, it was perhaps the next morning, maybe Thursday morning, that it was confirmed that Michael Spavor had also been uh, uh, detained. I'm Jeff Semple, senior correspondent for Global News, and this is China Rising. Episode 9, Mung and the Two Michaels. Zwetslut's friend, Michael Spavor, was born in 1975 and grew up in Calgary, Alberta. In his early 20s, he took a trip to Seoul and was flipping through a travel guide when he stumbled across a fascinating chapter on North Korea. Well, he never looked back. Spavor went on to study, live, and work in South Korea, becoming fluent in Korean. And around 2005, Spavor started working in the nonprofit sector, promoting tourism and investment in North Korea. That included organizing trips for Canadians and other Westerners to visit the so-called Hermit Kingdom. And in 2010, his friend Zwetslut joined one of those tours. He moved to, uh, to Northeast China to work on his passion, which is bringing together people from uh, North Korea and the rest of the world. From his home in northern China, Spavor worked to drum up international investments and promote economic projects in North Korea at a time when the reclusive regime's relations with the West appeared to be warming. Spavor also arranged hockey tournaments in the capital, Pyongyang, with professional players from Canada and all over the world. Zwetslut says Spavor's success in navigating that geopolitically tricky terrain is a testament to his charismatic, magnetic personality. Uh, he had an ability to... Uh uh, to go up to people who are complete strangers and um, and strike up a conversation with them in, in English or in Korean and become friends with them by the end of the exchange. And, and that was uh, one of the things that Michael did best. I, I really uh, 
respect that about him and I envy that. I mean, that's a, a skill that not many people have. He took us once to a, a, a small, it's not really a bar, it's not really a restaurant, it's kind of halfway between the two here in Seoul. And uh, each room was cramped. This is obviously well before COVID. Each room was cramped. Uh, and Michael took us there because he knew it was a cool place to hang out. And uh, uh, before we left, I think he knew half the people in the place. In 2013, Spavor made international headlines when he helped to facilitate a trip to North Korea for American basketball star Dennis Rodman. The NBA Hall of Famer had struck up an unlikely friendship with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, who was said to be a big basketball fan. If you meet the marshal over there, he's a very good guy. And that's very seriously. He has to do his job but he's a very good guy. Spavor tagged along with Rodman for that visit and fostered his own relationship with Kim, becoming one of the few Westerners with personal ties to the North Korean government. Spavor's Instagram photos from 2017 show the Canadian jet skiing and sharing cocktails with Kim Jong-un on board one of Kim's private boats. Sure, people have issues with, with the government of North Korea, but it, it, it's the, the people that really uh, won Michael's hearts, and he felt that uh, they deserved better, that they deserved uh, more exchange and, and more contact with people. And uh, and that's what Michael was trying to do in, in, a, in a way that uh, was um, non-confrontational, uh, inoffensive to the, uh, the governments of any country, just bringing people to people together. In 2017, at around the same time that Spavor was meeting with Kim in North Korea, another Canadian named Michael Kovrig had just landed a new job in Hong Kong. Kovrig grew up in Toronto in a family of travelers. His mother was a Czech immigrant raised in Montreal, his father a successful businessman and university professor from Austria. Kovrig graduated with an English degree from the University of Toronto in 1994 and he set out to see the world and teach overseas. He returned to school in his late 20s and earned another degree in international relations from Columbia University in 2003. And that's also where he met his wife, Vina Najibula. We met in uh, Econ. Yeah, Econ 101. <laughs> I mean, it was like an introductory course. There were very many people there. Uh, I was sitting in the front. He was sitting in the back row. It seems like a world, a lifetime. It was a lifetime ago. Yeah. 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 And so uh, he was copying off your notes or something and the rest is history. Is that it? <laughs> no, no, no. Michael was an amazing student. He, he's quite, like I said, studious and bookish. Um, so no, I think our connection was mainly around uh, conversation and music and, and poetry. Um, we spent hours talking when we first met. When discussing their shared passion for music, Kovrig mentioned to her that he'd previously been the singer and frontman for a Hungarian punk rock band back in the 90s called Bankrupt. Kovrig was 24, living in Budapest and working as a journalist for an English-language newspaper when he joined the band. As the frontman, he used the stage name Michael K., a rather ominous reference to the main character in Franz Kafka's novel The Trial. 
The century-old story is about a man who's arbitrarily prosecuted by a totalitarian state. Michael is a remarkable guy uh, on so many, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm biased, I think so. Um, he, he's a Renaissance man. Uh, he's someone who is both creative, uh, things like music, drama, and also deeply analytical and intellectual, very bookish. Um, he loves to travel. Kovrig eventually landed a job as a strategic communication specialist for the UN Development Program and later as a China analyst for an American research firm. He spent two years learning Mandarin before joining the Canadian Embassy in Beijing as vice counsel in 2014. In 2017, he became a senior advisor at the International Crisis Group. The nonprofit's stated goal is to build a more peaceful world with a focus on global security issues in Northeast Asia. He was based in Hong Kong. He is interested in making the world a better place and making himself the best man that he can be. Of course, this experience, these last two and a half years, have uh, been quite a masterclass in, in character building. Vina says Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor had only met once before, very briefly, while hanging out with a group of other expats in Beijing. But in December 2018, their fates collided. It was definitely a shock. And the first few days were very much um, a shock. And I think a lot of us at that point hoped that all of this would be resolved um, quickly, that it was a misunderstanding, that there was no way that this could continue. Spavor's friend, Jacko Swetslut, says the two Michaels became caught in a geopolitical power struggle between two superpowers and that their relatively high profiles made them ideal targets. They've been arrested for their, for their intrinsic value as pawns, not for anything that they've done or haven't done. They're not spies. Uh, they're just unlucky that there happened to be relatively high profile Canadian citizens caught in China uh, the week of the capture of Meng Wanzhou. On December 1st, 2018, just days before Kovrig and Spavor's arrests in China, Meng Wanzhou landed at Vancouver International Airport. Meng is the chief financial officer of Huawei. The Chinese company is the world's largest maker of telecom equipment and was once one of the world's biggest smartphone sellers. She'd arrived from Hong Kong on a layover en route to Mexico for a business meeting. Besides being a top executive, Meng is also the daughter of Huawei's founder and CEO, Ren Jinfei. She traveled a lot for work. Her passport was packed with visas from many of the 170 countries where Huawei does business. But on this trip, as she handed that well-worn passport to the Canadian Border Services agent, it flagged a warning in the system. There was a warrant for Mung's arrest from the U.S. Department of Justice. We begin with breaking news from China and a potentially major diplomatic problem for Canada. Huawei's CFO has been arrested in Canada at the request of U.S. authorities. 
From the moment Meng was placed in handcuffs by an RCMP officer, her detention has cast a long shadow over Canada-China relations. The accusations and the politics have put Canada in an awkward position. Canada is kind of caught in the middle uh, of a, a proxy war between China and the U.S. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked if he knew in advance of Meng's travel plans and her imminent arrest. He said he did. The appropriate authorities uh, took uh, the decisions in this case. Uh, we were advised uh, by them uh, with a few days' notice that this was uh, in the works, but of course uh, there was no uh, engagement or involvement uh, in the political level uh, in this decision because we respect the independence of our judicial processes. But despite Canada's claims of judicial independence, both Beijing and Meng's employer, Huawei, immediately condemned the U.S. charges as entirely baseless and politically motivated. Now remember, at the time of Meng's arrest in 2018, the U.S. was embroiled in a trade war with China, and Huawei, as a prominent Chinese tech firm, had become a favorite target of the Trump administration. Meng Wanzhou is a political pawn. She's been caught in the middle of this U.S.-China trade fight. That's Ali Khan Velshi, Vice President of Corporate Affairs for Huawei Canada. Velshi points to comments made by Trump just days after Meng's arrest. The U.S. president told the Reuters news agency he would, quote, certainly intervene in the case if he thought it would help secure a favorable trade deal with China. This case is about trade, it's about geopolitics, it's about leverage, but it's not about justice. The U.S. accuses Meng of making fraudulent, misleading statements to HSBC about Huawei's business dealings in Iran. The allegations center on a PowerPoint presentation she gave to HSBC executives in Hong Kong back in 2013. Meng allegedly tried to reassure the British bank that Huawei was not doing business in Iran when in fact one of its subsidiaries, a company called Skycom, was active in the country. Now, to be clear, Huawei's activities in Iran were permissible, according to most other countries. But the U.S. had levied sanctions against Iran, which meant that certain Iranian transactions, if made in U.S. dollars through a bank branch in the United States, were illegal. The Americans want Meng extradited to New York to face criminal charges of fraud. That's why she was arrested in Vancouver. The Trump administration essentially conjured up a victim in HSBC to justify her detention so that she could be used as leverage in this U.S.-China trade fight. And, you know, that is the real sort of abusive process. During her extradition case, which has dragged on for two and a half years, there has been much debate over exactly what Meng told HSBC and whether she did indeed mislead the bank's executives. But whatever she said, HSBC never actually suffered any financial losses or violated any U.S. sanctions as a result of Meng's statements. Nevertheless, the U.S. claims her actions put the bank at risk. This is unusual. That's University of Alberta law professor Joanna Harrington. The U.S. has put so much, obviously, so much effort into a, a allegation of fraud that occurred 
outside the United States, not by an American and not necessarily with an American victim. Criminal law is typically territorial. It's where your evidence is, it's where your witnesses are. Um, doesn't mean we can't have an extraterritorial criminal case, uh, but this one is unusual. And at times during the extradition hearing, Justice Heather Holmes sounded similarly skeptical of the charges. At one point, she asked the prosecution, isn't it unusual that one would see a fraud case with no actual harm many years later, and one in which the alleged victim, a large institution, appears to have numerous people within the institution who had all the facts that are now said to have been misrepresented? Well, the questions that she asked and the comments that she made seem to, to indicate that she's not impressed by the strength of the evidence. That's veteran extradition lawyer Gary Botting. He lives on the eastern edge of BC's Lower Mainland and has tried hundreds of cases over his 30-year career. Even if the judge isn't buying the prosecution's case, he says, the bar for extradition in Canada is incredibly low. Government lawyers only need to demonstrate that there would be sufficient evidence to bring the accused to trial if the crime had been committed in Canada. Between 2008 and 2018, the U.S. made about 800 extradition requests to Canada. Of those, about 500 made it to the courts and had an extradition hearing. And of those 500 requests, Canada rejected only eight. In other words, Canada grants about 98% of all U.S. extradition requests. We are a patsy for the United States. You know, we've given that part of our sovereignty away, it seems to me. And, and uh, that's why I've been reigning against this for 30 years now. Now, let's assume Mung does not beat those staggering odds and is ordered extradited to the United States. She's then widely expected to appeal, meaning the case could drag on for years. All the while, Mung has maintained a life of luxury, despite living under partial house arrest. Thanks to her family's tremendous wealth, she was released on $10 million bail and lives in a seven-bedroom mansion in Vancouver. Under the terms of her bail agreement, she wears a GPS monitor on her ankle and pays for 24-hour surveillance by a team of court-appointed security guards. At night, between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m., she must remain at home. But during the day, she is allowed to roam about the city as long as she travels with the guards and doesn't get too close to the airport. The court also heard how Mung goes on shopping sprees at high-end Vancouver boutiques. Some of the stores even set aside space so that she can browse in private. The court heard how Mung has attended large dinners with members of her family in apparent violation of COVID-19 restrictions. Meanwhile, in China, the two Michaels have not been so fortunate. We begin tonight with a major development in the ordeal faced by Canadian Michael Spaver. He's been found guilty of espionage by a Chinese court. In August, just as the home stretch of Meng's court case got underway in Vancouver, a Chinese court suddenly announced it had convicted Michael Spavor. He was sentenced to 11 years in prison, ordered to pay a fine and be deported, though the ruling didn't specify exactly when. 
The Chinese court also upheld a death sentence against another Canadian, Robert Schellenberg, who'd earlier been convicted of drug trafficking. There was no update on Michael Kovrig's case. He remains in prison awaiting a ruling, though there's little doubt about what that verdict will be. China has a conviction rate of 99%, so the rulings themselves were hardly surprising. But the timing of the decisions wasn't lost on Canada's former ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques. This is a, a highly political case. The timing uh, of all this is obviously linked in my mind to what's happening in Vancouver in relation to Mrs. Mang. The Chinese government wants to add pressure uh, on the Canadian government to free Mrs. Mang. The Chinese government has been clear, they have indicated in the past that uh, uh, if Mrs. Meng is not returned to China, there will be uh, no progress. On October 21st, the BC judge will announce a date for when she will finally present her ruling in Meng's case. If Meng loses and is ordered extradited to the United States, the Canadian government will still have an opportunity to intervene. The final decision in all extradition cases falls to Canada's Minister of Justice, the Attorney General. But the Canadian government has been steadfast in its resolve to not get involved. Despite pressure from a number of former Canadian diplomats and parliamentarians to agree to a prisoner swap to trade Hmong for the two Michaels. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has consistently ruled out any intervention in the case that, in his words, would undermine Canada's independent judicial system. The opposition Conservative Party has expressed a similar position. If countries around the world, including China, realize that by arbitrarily arresting random Canadians, they can get what they want out of Canada politically, well, that makes an awful lot more Canadians who travel around the world vulnerable to that kind of pressure. Former Ambassador Saint-Jacques believes the most plausible resolution lies with the United States. Unconfirmed reports late last year claimed the U.S. Justice Department was in discussion with Meng's lawyers on a plea agreement, whereby she would admit to some wrongdoing and then be allowed to return to China. But those talks, as well as a visit to Washington last spring by Canada's ambassador to China, ended without any agreement. And the Canadian government by itself cannot do very much to, uh, to help to uh, 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 get the release of the two Canadians. I think efforts uh, need to be made to continue to put pressure on uh, Washington to come up with a solution that would result in Mrs. Meng uh, agreeing to a plea bargain. Uh, they would therefore remove the extradition request and Mrs. Meng could return to China. A Huawei spokesperson told Global News, Meng has done nothing wrong and therefore there's nothing to admit. If a deal can't be struck between the U.S. and Meng, Saint-Jacques fears the case could drag on for several more years. As Mrs. Meng can avail herself of uh, appeals, uh, we, we, we have to be realistic that uh, she could stay in Canada for three, four uh, more years, which means that our two Canadians will be in jail for uh, uh, quite some time. Michael Kovrig's wife, 
Vina Najibula hasn't seen her husband for nearly three years, 1,000 days since his arrest. It's difficult to fathom uh, being that cut off, being so removed from everything um, that he knows. Kovrig spent the first six months of his detention in isolation, subjected to daily interrogations, before being transferred to a regular jail cell, about three by three meters in size, which he shares with a few other cellmates. He's now permitted limited access to a small number of books, and for a few hours each month, he's given a pen and paper to write letters. Those are then handed to Canadian consular staff who are permitted brief visits about once a month, though those meetings were restricted for a time during the pandemic. So our primary contact uh, remains through consular visits, and they are extremely important. Uh, they're a lifeline to Michael. What can we say about his, his mindset? I mean, how is he doing in there? He, he has been remarkable. Um, he continues to um, engage in daily regimen of exercise. Uh, he also meditates, does yoga. A big part of his day uh, is reading books. That is what's really keeping his spirits up. Uh, it's giving him a window into life outside of his immediate surrounding, which is very bleak. Um, he's, he's doing everything he can to stay positive, but of course this is taking a toll. I mean, we don't even know the full extent of the toll that's taken on him. Kovrig's letters have described life in a Chinese prison as a gray, grinding monotony. He wakes up at 6.30 every morning with the other detainees and has described his diet as a lot of boiled rice with an occasional boiled vegetable. Every day, he walks 7,000 steps around his windowless concrete cell. His tone fluctuates between hope and despair. In one letter, he wrote, Trauma carved caverns of psychological pain through my mind. But in another, he says, Rest assured, I remain resolute and resilient. You must be relentless. In March of last year, Kovrig's father was ill. So Chinese authorities permitted Kovrig's family in Canada to have one phone call with him. The first and only time they've heard his voice since his arrest. There have been so many moments in this 1,000 day journey that have been especially emotional or meaningful or difficult and heartbreaking. And that was one of those surreal moments uh, where it sounded so normal because it was Michael and he sounded like himself. And yet uh, it was profoundly heartbreaking as well, knowing where he is and and not being able to see him. And um, his father and his sister were also on the call and it was really deeply moving for all of us. That phone call lasted 16 minutes and 37 seconds. He sounded very much like himself. I mean, and, and in his letters, he also continues to sound like himself, which means uh, he's analytical, he's sharp, uh, he has a really witty sense of humor. Um, it's actually amazing to me that his sense of humor uh, is so very much intact. Um, and, you know, he's, he's articulate, he, he gets to communicate what he feels and really took the moment to do that um, and to reassure all of us that he's doing everything he can to stay strong and that he has faith in us that we're doing everything we can to, to bring him home. Though Vina and Kovrig are legally married, 
they were separated before his arrest. But she has led the family's fight to free the man she affectionately calls our Michael. Even though we're no longer romantically together, he's family, he's someone uh, who means a great deal to me and out of my love and loyalty, I continue to fight for his freedom and uh, together with the rest of his family and friends and colleagues around the world. And it's a promise I have made to him and it's a promise I intend to keep until the day that he's finally free. To mark his 1,000th day in detention on August 5th, Vina organized a solidarity march in Ottawa for supporters to march together towards Parliament Hill, 7,000 steps, just like Kovrig does in his cell every day. Here we are, uh, 1,000 days uh, into this, and I, I sincerely hope that we are at the end, uh, sort of at the final inning of this uh, geopolitical drama, and that Michael will finally be able to come home. Every day, she says, she imagines getting the phone call that Michael is on a plane on his way home. That is what I focus on every day when I start the day and wonder what, what I can do today to bring that closer to, to reality. I mean, that is the mission. The goal is to get him on a plane to Toronto. That goal recently inspired a song written and performed by Kovrig's old Hungarian rock band, Bankrupt. The group just released the new track to raise awareness about Kovrig's case. It's called The Plane to Toronto. Over the course of this podcast, we've investigated China's so-called hostage diplomacy, as well as Beijing's increasingly aggressive foreign policy and its response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Opinion polls show these events have hurt Beijing's image abroad. Most Canadians now hold an unfavorable view of the Chinese Communist Party. And those growing tensions between China and the West have also fueled a sharp rise in anti-Asian racism. Stomped on, spat on, murdered. All these incidents happening since the beginning of the global COVID-19 pandemic, and Canada is not immune to the hate. I heard from behind me him shouting, China, Japan. We'll shine a spotlight on this dark racist underbelly next time on China Rising. China Rising is written and produced by me, Jeff Semple, with producers Camille Razavi and Dila Velezquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston, editing assistance from Stephanie D'Souza. You can help me share this podcast by telling a friend. And don't forget to rate and review China Rising on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Semple GN 
And you can email me at jeff.semple at globalnews.ca. Thanks again for listening, and please join me next time on China Rising.